You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. We'll take our Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Last Sunday we started a uh, new sermon series called When I Grow Up and uh, introduced this uh, simple visual. Uh, this jar of uh, fuzzy sticks, pipe cleaners, uh, whatever you know these to be. Uh, this represents a week. Uh, every week has 168 hours in it. There are 168 of these in here. Uh, what I discussed a little bit last week is that the average family allots about one hour to discipleship. That is the average family that entrusts all of that to the church. Uh, so that doesn't look like much, does it? What's pretty sobering when you think about this is uh, from the time that your child is born until they are 18, you have 936 of these. 936 weeks. Uh, let, me, let me break it down just a little bit more. If you have a 12-year-old right now, a 12-year-old, you have just over 300 of these left. From the time that they're 12 until they're 18, basically. Uh, and so what uh, I hope that impresses upon you is that uh, every moment of every day has value, uh, is critically important, and uh, I certainly hope that you are not average uh, in the sense that you are trusting the church entirely to do discipleship for you. We have absolutely no desire uh, as church leadership to take that responsibility from you. In fact, we want to partner with you. We want to help you. We want to support you. Uh, in your responsibility to train your children, to disciple them. Uh, this, in, this message, uh, this series is entitled, When I Grow Up. Uh, you know, whenever our kids uh, finally get to a place where they kind of have an idea of what they might like to do, and of course that changes many times uh, through the years from the time that they're little bitty until uh, it's actually time to make that decision, uh, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, but that piques our interest, gets our attention when they say, when I grow up, I want to... Uh, it makes me wonder, what is it that we wish or want for our kids? I mean, you know, it makes sense that we would say, well, I want them to be successful. Okay, that's kind of a broad way of looking at it. Sure, you want them to be successful. Uh, but what does that really mean? Well, I want them, to, I want them to, to get the education that they need so that they can be successful. I hope that's important to you. Some would say, well, I want my kids to have financial security. Sure, that's great. And I hope that you're teaching them to be financially responsible so that that will be possible someday. Um, some would say, well, when my kids are younger particularly, I, I want them to be popular. I want them to be liked by their friends and by their peers. And the thought of my kid being you know, ostracized or marginalized or left alone or left out or anything like that is just mind-boggling to me. I just I couldn't stand the thought of that. And, and so there are different things that we wish for our kids. But I wonder, what is it that you want for your kids spiritually when they grow up? Do you want them to grow up more than just physically? Because that will happen. You feed them, they will grow. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling how fast they do grow up. But more than growing up physically, how are they growing spiritually? Are you giving attention to that? 
Because if you notice something is wrong physically and maybe they're not growing like they should, or they go for their annual checkup and the doctor says, you know, I'm a little concerned about weight here and maybe they're not in the percentile that we had maybe hoped or, you know, all those different things. You naturally would be concerned about that, but are you concerned about their spiritual development? Is that something that you're giving attention to? Is that a priority for you as a family? So in this series, we're looking at the biblical pattern of generational discipleship or discipleship in the home. And the key text for that is here in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. I want us to pick it up again once, uh, once again in verse number 4. We'll read down through verse number 9. So I hope that you'll follow along as I read this morning. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." God spoke of the power of generational discipleship, not only here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but really throughout Scripture. He began making his intentions clear at the time of creation when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 28. Now that command, while it may appear to be the case, is not limited to physical procreation. In Genesis chapter 5, we see that the earth grew more populated, and yet God showed his disappointment in in that this multiplied people uh, were not following him. And so it seems clear that the essence of his intent was to multiply, multiply my presence on the earth through your children. In other words, pass these very important truths on from generation to generation. We discussed last week how important that is, even in the context of the local church. I realize that some of you this morning are at various stages of of your life. I I see some with grandchildren this morning. I happen to know some of you even have great-grandchildren, and that's great. And then there are some here this morning who would say, God has not given us any children, and it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case, and, and that's okay too. You still can have a part in this process of discipleship right here within the context of the local church. Some of those who support the discipleship of our children the most, and with the most uh, energy, are those who've never had children of their own. Uh, And so we all play a part in this. Now we see this generational thread wind its way throughout the Old and New Testaments. God told Abraham that he should direct his children and family in righteousness and justice in Genesis chapter 18 verse 19. And then later, Moses instructed the family leaders to show their children how God's involvement in everyday life has purpose and meaning. And we find that even right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you move your eyes down the page to verse number 20, notice it says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son... We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there. 
that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And so, again, you see this idea of, uh, of instructing the next generation of, of God's involvement in everyday life, how God had brought them out of Egypt, how God had promised to give them this promised land. And, and it's just pointing to God's faithfulness uh, throughout their history. And then in Isaiah chapter 38, verse number 19, Hezekiah described how each generation will define God's greatness based upon what the previous generation has taught. After the fall of Judah and Israel, God still focused on generations passing along their faith, passing along their values during the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And we're introduced then to a guy by the name of Nehemiah who worked quickly uh, to complete his building project. But we find that he called a time out to talk to the leaders of the families. And when the wall was half built and the enemy was threatening and mocking their God, he said, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then he said this, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, I think we still need to do the same thing today. The enemy still has a desire to destroy families, to destroy homes, to wreck lives, to wreck marriages and all those things. And we have to every day be fighting for those things, for our sons and our daughters and our homes and our marriages and our church. Then the Old Testament closes with a generational exclamation point in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, showing God's desire to turn the hearts of the fathers to be in tune with their children and vice versa, so each will follow God. And then the New Testament. It basically opens with a lady named Elizabeth hearing what John the Baptist, her future son, would do. Luke 1.17, it describes how he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So the principles of generational discipleship appear consistently throughout Scripture for all people, and they still apply to us today. The New Testament, in fact, quotes the books of Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah more than any other books of the Old Testament. Jesus himself quoted from the twin pillars of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 in Leviticus 19, 18. And he summarized those into two commands. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, great and first commandment. And he went on to say, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so to suggest this morning or to think that Deuteronomy is outdated or to limit this teaching to ancient Israel would be for us to overlook how the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the New Testament as a whole reference this foundational book in general and this particular passage in particular. Very, very important. So this morning, I want us to consider, first of all, a priority responsibility. A priority responsibility. Uh, one of the things that I've often said through the years, and I've come to understand more and more, and I, I'm still learning this myself, but God created us to worship. 
That's just how God wired us. Now, the problem comes in when we choose to worship things other than God. But we worship. That's just how we're made. That's how we're created. Okay? And so, uh, whatever you attach your heart to, we sometimes say, that's why Scripture speaks of it this way, be careful uh, what your heart falls in love with, because what you are most passionate about, you will prioritize. And what you prioritize, that will determine the path of your life. That will determine the things that you will give the most attention to. And so what we're seeing here is the importance of prioritizing as, as of most importance our relationship with God, our love for God. It's very clear in the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God, what, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Why? Because God knows that the, the tendency of the human heart is to, is to not give our full love and affection and attention to God. We see that pattern throughout Scripture uh, with the people of God particularly. There would be seasons where, boy, it seems like, man, we're, we're doing well, we're on fire for the Lord, and then God blesses, and then we forget God's blessings, and we grow complacent, and we grow ungrateful, and then we go searching after something else, and then, man, God has to you know, take care of that, and then you just see this vicious cycle, and, and, and if you're really honest, you could probably see the same thing in your own life personally. There are times and seasons where I gave way too much attention to those things that shouldn't be most important for me. And so we see this idea of a priority responsibility. The Deuteronomy 6 philosophy of generational discipleships comes from the ancient roots found in the way that God instructed Hebrew parents to be leaders in their kids' lives. So from the very beginning, God wanted the tabernacle and then later the temple to be the center of life around which people built their homes. And quite literally here with the, the children of Israel particularly, I mean, uh, the tribes surrounded uh, the, the, the tabernacle. And so God's intention has always been a close-knit spiritual family, what today we call the church, leading and partnering with parents, teaching one generation after another. So the core Deuteronomy 6 passage shows how parents are to allow their love for God and his word to overflow into the lives of their kids and let a Christ-following relationship be both caught and taught. But it's not going to happen by accident. Think of it like this. Most parents, most responsible parents anyway, would say that they want their kids to be physically healthy. But can you imagine somebody saying, but the only time I'm going to give any attention to my kids' physical health is annually when I take them to their doctor visit, their annual checkup. And, and, and I'm hoping and praying that by making that one visit a year to their doctor and maybe other times when they're sick and they, they need some medical attention. But apart from that, we're not going to give uh, much attention at all to their physical health, what they eat, how much physical activity they get, how much rest they're getting, you know, any of those kind of things. We would say that's ridiculous. To maintain good physical health, that's a daily, that's a daily endeavor, I mean, kids left to themselves, let's be honest, will eat way too many ding-dongs, right? Do we, they still have ding-dongs today? I know I would, right? So if you just say, you know, the pantry's all yours, go for it. <laughs> and, and you stock that thing up with junk food, nine times out of ten, they're going to pick junk food. All right? Now, I, I've got a nine-year-old daughter. Y'all aren't going to believe this. In fact, there have been times when I've doubted that she was really mine. She, 
she doesn't like ice cream. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine that. I love ice cream. Uh, I mean, so, so left to ourselves, we many times will not make the wisest of decisions as it relates to our physical health. We overextend ourselves many times. We don't get a good night's sleep when we should. We worry and fret about things that we shouldn't. We just, I mean, that's just kind of how, you know, we are in this broken, crazy world. And so it would be ridiculous to think that we can maintain good physical health for our kids by just simply taking them to the doctor one time a year for a checkup and then taking them to the doctor when they're sick. Now, you've got to practice good health in your family on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And the same thing is true spiritually. Now, one of the traps that we can fall into as parents, particularly, is that most of our parenting is corrective in nature. And I realize that some of you are at that phase of child rearing right now where it feels like all you ever say is no. Right? You ever had that? Like, you wish, wish you could just put that on repeat all day long. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that, right? But you know that to have a healthy balance as a parent, you not only want to correct bad behavior, you want to affirm good behavior and instruct your kids in how to be more responsible. That's just what parenting is. And the same thing is true spiritually. Okay, we don't want our spiritual, uh, our, our spiritual, our discipleship to just be corrective in nature where we're just constantly giving our kids a list of things we don't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't do, you know I mean, yeah, there, there, there's, some, there's some wisdom in that, but you want to balance that with the, the training and teaching and, and, and nurturing and the admonition of the Lord. Let me just give you a simple example, and we're going to expand upon this in a little more practical way in the next few weeks, Lord willing. One of the things that we would we'd tell any of our kids would be, be nice to others, right? Isn't that something you teach your kids? And, and most of us have had a time or two or more when our kids come home from school and, and maybe they've got tears in their eyes and they're like, so-and-so was mean to me today. So-and-so called me a name or they didn't let me play with them and, you know, in my friend group or, you know, I mean, we just live in a, in a mean world sometimes, Right. And so you want your kids to develop a, a little bit of emotional uh, toughness there, but at the same time, you hate to see your kids hurt by people, and, and, and it can be a real challenge. And so we do. We teach our kids, be kind to others, be nice to others, and that's good teaching. That's great. But what I want you to understand is biblical discipleship, as we're seeing it unpacked here, is much more than just teaching good morals. Okay, be kind to others. That's good. But beyond that, why is it that we believe that? Why is that so important? Because as we look at Scripture, it tells us that God values all lives. All lives, regardless of the color of your friend's skin, regardless of, of their, you know, how nice of shoes they, they get to wear every day to school, regardless of all those things. God wants us to be kind to others because we're all created in the image of God. We're all image bearers. So where it gets really difficult then is to instruct your kid to love and to be kind even to the kids who are mean. Because the easy thing to do as a parent many times is to go, well, you just avoid them. And there may be a point where that's necessary to a degree. But at the same time, we want to consistently be instructing our kids biblically on what it looks like to love the world around them. 
Not just those who add benefit to them and to their lives, not just those who are like them, not just those who are kind to them, but Scripture teaches we're to love even our enemies. And so how do you expand upon that simple teaching of being nice to people? That's just an example of what we're talking about here. And so we see this priority. Okay, it doesn't happen by accident. We have to prioritize spiritual training. But then beyond that, I want you to see here a personal responsibility. A personal responsibility. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to hear this. You cannot pass on what you do not possess. You cannot pass on what you yourself do not possess. And I want you to notice in the text here of Deuteronomy chapter 6, how many times we see the word you or your, how it's personalized. In fact, let's even back up to verse number 1 of chapter 6 and notice that it says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. And then it says this, you and your son and your son's son. Now we see this generational language. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in verse 4 is where we pick it up again. Notice again, notice the language here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Do you see the personal responsibility here? This is where we get this idea, this, this concept of, of, of this is something that we have to own ourselves. You cannot effectively pass on what you do not yourself possess. So it cannot be, uh, you sit your kids down and go, hey, don't do as I do, do as I say. In fact, if, if you were to find kind of a companion uh, text in the New Testament to the teaching here in Deuteronomy 6, you would probably look to Ephesians 6. And Scripture makes it clear there that one of the ways that particularly we dads can exasperate and frustrate our kids is to be hypocrites. To say one thing, but do something else. And so there's this reciprocal relationship. If, if we're going to expect our kids to embrace these very important truths, then they must see us embracing these truths ourselves. It's very important that you understand here, of most importance, is the personal responsibility. Your personal relationship with the Lord. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you, are you committed to obeying the word of God and loving the word of God? Do your kids see that lived out in your life? There was a song that became especially meaningful to me a number of years ago when our boys who are now 28 and 26 were just little guys. The song sung by uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. In fact, I think Dan Dean was the one who wrote the song. The song's entitled, Lord, I Want to Be Just Like You. I want you to listen to these words. He climbs in my lap for a good night hug. He calls me dad and I call him bub. With his faded old pillow and a bear named Pooh, he snuggles up close and says, I want to be like you. I tuck him in bed and I kiss him good night. 
tripping over the toys as I turn out the light. And I whisper a prayer that someday he'll see he's got a father in God because he's seeing Jesus in me. Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. And it goes on to say this, got to admit I've got so far to go, make so many mistakes, and I'm sure that you know. Sometimes it seems no matter how hard I try, with all the pressures in life, I just can't get it all right. But I'm trying so hard to learn from the best, being patient and kind, filled with your tenderness. Because I know that he'll learn from the things that he sees. That's very important. And the Jesus he finds will be the Jesus in me. Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that your little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. Right now, from where he stands, I may seem mighty tall, but it's only because I'm learning from the best father of them all. I hope that you can say this morning that you are actively, as a matter of priority, learning from the best father of them all. We just sang about a good, good father who loves us unconditionally, who is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. I hope you see the importance of the personal responsibility here. And then I want you to notice finally this morning a parental responsibility. Notice the text changes. It changes from this personal responsibility to then a parental responsibility where in verse number seven, it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and bind them as a sign on your hand. They should be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So now we go from this personal responsibility to a parental responsibility. All the while remembering you cannot effectively pass on what you yourself do not possess. And you will find that future generations will tend to prioritize those things that they see prioritized in their home. I'm reminded of the text in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, we went to 2 Timothy chapter 1 last week when we talked about young Timothy and his kind of his spiritual heritage there. Paul was addressing him in, in chapter 1, and he said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So there's that generational discipleship, passing on the truth. And then it's in chapter 2 of that same letter to Timothy that the Apostle Paul gives us this classic pattern of discipleship in Scripture. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Then entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've often referred to that text as Christianity's power sweep. It is our bread and butter. 
Because, you see, if, if this generation fails to pass on the truth and a passionate love for God and his word to the next generation, eventually what happens? Eventually we die out. So we must continue to pass on the things of God from one generation to the next. This past Thursday, I had the opportunity to, uh, to volunteer at the high school track meet. And... Uh, just something I enjoyed doing, enjoyed beautiful day, Thursday, got to be out in the sun, and I just enjoyed time out there, and I always marvel at how fast the sprinters can run, you know, to run, uh, you know, 100 meters and, you know, just shy of 11 seconds, and I mean, it's just incredible. Um, uh, I've always been envious of those people who are built more like thoroughbreds than Clydesdales. I'm more a Clydesdale, um, and so I you know, I, I can appreciate the speed there, but I also appreciate the endurance that you see in a distance runner. Um, I can think of a lot of things I'd rather do than run a mile, but I can, uh, I can appreciate someone who has that kind of endurance. And then you take a race like the 800 meters now, it's basically two laps around the track, but it's now essentially a sprint. So it's not just how fast you can run or how far you can run, but how far you can run fast. Um, it, it's amazing to me. I can appreciate the athleticism that these kids were exhibiting there on Thursday. But one of the things that I, I love to watch the most in a track meet are the relays. And so as I was watching this on Thursday, I was watching that what's called the sprint relay. It's, you know, each runner runs a, 100 meters. Okay, and so to collectively, four people do one lap around the track. I mean, it's fast. And, it's, and, and so the cool thing about it is it's obviously it's a team event. And so the baton has to be passed from one runner to the next until that last runner, the anchor leg, brings it across the finish line. And, and, and there were some things that, I, that you'll notice as you watch one of these relays, and that is the fact that the baton has to first be in the hand of the first runner. Okay, that's how the race has started. The person who's going to run that first leg starts with the baton. Okay, and then they run their portion of the race. If it's the sprint relay, they run 100 meters, and they hand it to the next runner. If it's, if it's the, 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 the mile relay, then they do a complete lap, and then they're going to hand it to the next runner, and that runner's going to do a complete lap around the track, and, and so forth. And the truth is this. The baton must be transferred from one runner to the next within a passing zone. Okay, you can't just determine that one of your runners is actually going to do, um, you know, 600 meters, because that would just be better, more convenient. No, you, you have to pass that baton in a, in a certain stretch of the track in order for it to be a, a legal uh, transfer of the baton. And then obviously, the baton must be brought across the finish line. And there are other rules and things that come into play here. But there were some observations that I made as I stood there and I watched these relays the other evening. And that's this. The runners were eager to get the baton particularly in the four by four, where everybody kind of starts at the same spot. Okay, so what happens is as that first runner is going around the track, the, 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 the judges there are putting each of the next runners in order according to how they're coming down the home stretch, okay? And every one of them is looking back at the person bringing the baton to them, and they're standing there and they're going like this. I mean, you can tell they can hardly wait to get their hands on that baton so that they can run their leg of the race, that's what we want to create in our kids. 
It's that kind of excitement, that kind of exuberance, that kind of that thrill that comes from accepting, receiving the baton of the truth and running with it myself. And that doesn't happen by accident. And so I pray every day that God use us to stir that up within our kids. And in some cases, within our grandkids. And for some of you, your great-grandkids even. That's what I pray. I also notice that after the transfer, runners continued to cheer for their teammates. I I don't know that I saw any of those runners after they had transferred the baton. Now, some were were pretty worn out, naturally. But I didn't see many of them just check out. No, they continued to cheer for for the next runners in the race. And then I saw these teams, particularly obviously the ones who won, they they celebrated victory together. And to me, it's a beautiful picture of this whole thing of generational discipleship. Now, here's a sobering truth, though. As we said with this visual illustration, you really only have so much time when you can effectively pass the baton of truth from one generation to the next. That's not to say that there's a magical moment when your kids turn 18 where you can no longer transfer truth to them. But let's just face it. The reality is the most effective time, the most effective stretch to pass the baton of truth from one generation to the next is in those formative years. In those formative years. That's why every week matters. And every moment that makes up every hour, that makes up every day, that makes up every week, that makes up every month, that makes up every year is critically important. And if you're here this morning and you're content to say, I'm just going to let the church take care of that. I'm going to give the church about one hour a week to disciple my kids. You're missing the mark. You're missing the mark. And what you will find, and I've seen this many times over in counseling sessions, is there are people who have not done real well in transferring that baton. And so what you see is they're still standing out there on the track, and they're watching their kids and their grandkids run around the track, and they're going, I just wish there were some things I would have told you. I really intended to to tell you this, and I really intended to to make sure you understood the priority of this, but I I was so busy at work, and I was so busy making money, and I I was so busy doing other things that I I, I missed the, I didn't get to tell you. I said things I didn't get to teach you. The last thing I want for any of our families, any of our parents, is for you to let me standing on the track someday going, if only I had taken the opportunity when I had it. If only I hadn't wasted so many of those hours. If only. Don't let that be the case. And again, I know some of you are in different stages of of life right now, and some of you are saying, well, we've already finished raising our kids, and that's great. Some would say, well, I've never been married, and not sure if I'm going to. That's great, too. Everybody within a church family can be involved in this process. And some of the most faithful people that that are in this process of discipling the next generation are people who are not working and serving with their own kids. Their kids are already grown. They already have grandkids. I love nothing more than during the week of VBS to see some of our senior adults serving in this process right here at First Baptist Church. Because you understand the importance of passing the truth from one generation to the next. Now, we've been here long enough that I could spend some time out here on Wednesday night with RAs and GAs, and I could look at some of those kids and think, man, I remember when they were just this tall. Now they're this tall. 
And I've had the privilege of baptizing some of them. And so I, I look forward to what God's going to do with their life. And that's something that we as a church family can be a part of and we can celebrate. And again, some of you this morning, you're in the process of stopping a cycle of spiritual indifference. If that's where you are, then I pray for you. Because I know it's not easy. I know it's tough sometimes. And in stopping that cycle of spiritual indifference, you are committed to starting a cycle of belief and commitment and prioritizing the things of God. And I hope that's true for you because it's not easy. It's not easy. Generational discipleship. There's a priority responsibility. There's a personal responsibility and there's a parental responsibility. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.